in a world of pop radio and plastic pop hits. Cause baby, I work. One station fears no format. WCBN FM Ann Arbor, where our form is always free. Tune in for the best jazz. Rock and weird stuff you won't hear anywhere else. Rock over London, rock on Chicago. Wheaties, represent champions. Broadcasting live 24 7. WCBN FM Ann Arbor at WCBN.org or 88.3 on the dial. Turn it to the left and rip the knob off. Scott Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Peter Ho Davies is here in the studio. Hey, T. Hey, Peter. Thanks for coming thanks for down me. to the studio. Um, it's the day before Thanksgiving. Um, I've always known this, but I'm going to say it again. You're a bit of a saint. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am British. So, you know, Thanksgiving for me, you guys are all grateful for something, but you know. <laughs> You're like, thankful, Pa. <laughs> No, but it's true, actually. My mom is a little bit like, oh, what kind of holiday is this? Oh, this is just... I don't know. No, but it's good to be thankful, isn't sure. it? Of course. I yeah. know. I know. I'm thankful for you, Peter well, Ho Davies. Thanks for having me here as well. Oh, well, it's it's good to see you. Um, we've got your book, your latest novel, The Fortunes, um, on the table with us. Um, before we go any further, I'll read the short bio in the back, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Peter Ho Davies is the critically acclaimed, award-winning author of The Welsh Girl, long listed for the Booker Prize, The Ugliest House in the World, and Equal Love. Davies was chosen by Granta as one of the best of young British novelists in 2003. He teaches at the University of Michigan and lives in Ann Arbor. And you can learn more about Peter Ho Davies by going to peterhodavies.com. Um, Peter. We get a clue to some of your biography sure. with the, the Granta mm-hmm. there, where you hearken from other shores. <laughs> yeah, although I, it's funny, that Granta thing, well, I was, very, um, I was very moved to be on that list. They do that list every 10 years, and I think the very first one was when I was a teenager. And, uh, and it meant a lot to me, I think, as a, you know, a youngster and somebody who was just beginning to think about writing because it suddenly said to me, oh, look, writers can be young and they can be alive as opposed right. to all the dead people I was reading in high school, I think, at that point. And there were a few people on there, um, Salman Rushdie, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, who also suggested you can be British and not white, which was encouraging to me as well, I think, in lots of ways. Um, so that list, you know, being on that list 20 years later, I mean, it, you know, it meant a lot to me, although I always encountered it with a little bit of embarrassment because, you know, I made this list of best of young British novelists when I was almost 40, which was the cutoff, so not that young, um, and British when I'd been living in the U.S. by that point for at least a decade, if not 15 years or so. Um, you know, so a novelist, you know, which is also strange at that point because uh, I had not yet written a novel. I'd written two collections of short stories at that stage. So a little bogus, but I will, I'll take it. Oh, and I love also how, well, not bogus, but um, like this uh, 
both things or all like like kind of this i don't know um it seems like there's this quality especially running through the fortunes mm -hmm. of this idea of like um maybe things that are hyphenated um yeah. chinese american um for example and so <laughs> maybe it's this this it, like this idea of identity yeah and, i, I think the, the, what the, these things mean yeah the book is very interested in sort of dualities and halves right i mean uh, so i'm very interested in Writing is a novel about Chinese-American history and uh, Chinese-American figures through the last 150 years or so of the Chinese-American community. Um, uh, that's kind of a big thing. You just said it like, <laughs> like <laughs> the, last, the last 150 years Well, I don't cover every so. single year of that whole history. I mean, we hop around a little bit in time. We drop into particular moments. Um, but I think, I think that duality is something that... Um, you know, I've grappled with them in various ways. So I'm half Welsh on my father's side, half Chinese on my mother's. Um, you know, I think when I was uh, an undergraduate, I originally studied physics and have a first degree in physics and then moved on to study literature and writing. So there's a kind of uh, disciplinary divide maybe in my life between the arts and the sciences in those ways. And I think this year I'll mark the... Um, my 25th year of living in the U.S., which means that since I just turned 50, I've now lived half my life in the U.S. So that sort of split identity, you know, um, I feel in sort of ethnic ways, racial ways, but also in some of the features of my life. And and when you're thinking about this, like the the 25 year mark, how how does that? I, I mean, can you say more about that? Like this idea, because you you also are. You're married to an American. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, hello, Lynn. <laughs> and you have a son. Hello, Owen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so both like the, with the, I guess, the label of American, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so, and you, like you, you, it's not like you've, you haven't, you, you're still a British national, right, Peter? Yeah, you haven't I have a green card, to, but I haven't okay. taken a U.S. citizenship, although I think about it, uh, and I suspect I will at some point uh, now. Um, now, politically now, because of also the change recently. Oh, well, <laughs> there, are, there have been moments in the last few weeks when I wished for citizenship so I could vote, right? Yes. Um, uh, and so that would be one motivating factor. I think, though, uh, the 25 years, uh, even though I've known this for a while now, it, it's an interesting way of marking that, the idea of having spent half my life here. But it, it feels like a, a tipping point, although I think probably my the center of gravity in my life has moved across the Atlantic, you know, probably even certainly from the point of my son being born 12 years ago, if not earlier than that. So I, I feel like I've mostly been delaying something that I've been thinking about doing for a while. Uh, so citizenship feels like it's on the cards at some point. But does it feel like that will change anything, I wonder? Because yeah, because this is as we're talking, I feel like, and this is all, believe it or not, folks, <laughs> listening. It's all it's this idea of identity. This is all what the the, the book, the fortunes, is, yeah, is also I mean, about. But so thinking about it for you, would it, will it change anything? You're talking, I think, about you know, taking American citizenship seems like it means something slightly different two weeks after an election uh, that we've just had than it did previously in certain ways. Um, it maybe feels more urgent. Uh, it crosses my mind that maybe it, won't be, it might be slightly harder for me. I don't think that'll be true, but you never know. Um, you know, I think one of the things about writing The Fortunes that was interesting to me and thinking about hyphenated identity and thinking about a novel that was, um, and this is really my first work that's been fully set in the U.S., and it's a book in which I sort of came to terms with my my identity initially as Chinese American in certain ways. You know, both of those things are questions for me to grapple with. I'm uh, half Chinese by blood and less than half Chinese by culture. Um, so I'm moving towards both of those identities and to the hyphen of that identity and struggling with, I think, in some ways for myself, some questions of identity that have dogged me throughout my life. Um, I think what dawned on me is that whenever we think about that hyphenated identity, and, of course, there are lots of immigrant groups in the U.S. that struggle with hyphenated identities. Um, there's a tendency to see in that duality a choice. Does one lean more towards one side of the hyphen or the other? Uh, and there are problems or challenges associated with that choice. If one leans more towards one's Chinese heritage... Is that a failure to assimilate and to join the mainstream of the culture that one is immigrating into? If one leans more towards assimilation, is that a betrayal or a turning away from one's heritage, right? So there's a way in which it feels loose-lose in some ways, right? But only loose-lose if we think about it as a choice, if we think about it as a duality. So one of the things I've worked towards and I thought about the, the book, and I think I've been working towards it in my own life in some ways, is the idea... Um, 
that it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both or even neither. That in a sense, I was writing, writing, writing less about Chinese-ness or American-ness than I was writing about the hyphen that lies in between, right? That the hybrid identity is its own authenticity in various ways. And all of that feels politically quite germane at the moment because I think we're struggling with a moment where we have to ask ourselves... Um, you know, rhetorically, as we hear in our, in our politicians speak, can one be Mexican and American? Can one be Muslim and American, right? I think the answer to those things are surely yes, but I know there are people who question those things, right? I would argue that we can be more than one thing uh, and that we don't have to think about that as a choice at some kind of loyalty test in various ways. So while I've had hesitations in the past about taking American citizenship and thought, am I more American? Am I more British? Maybe I need to take that lesson to heart myself and think about it not being a choice that maybe I can be both of those things. It seems like with citizenship, I think that's lovely, Peter, what you've, what you've just said. Um, and I think maybe part of it is also to because just to follow this through line a, a little bit longer, but not much, because <laughs> um, then you have to also say that you no longer recognize, for example, the British crown, your British nationality. Right. So that's like taking that's almost like a public where you're saying I have, you know, you're choosing. <laughs> well, right. even though you're not choosing. Right. The sense of pronunciation is Yeah, you have to say it yeah. somehow. Um, yeah. And I think that's something that I will have to think about and probably been, been one of the things that I think has made me hesitate in the past. Um, you know, I think in my heart, I am already and formally would like to be a sort of dual citizen in certain senses, right? If that status is a, is a possibility. Um, but there have been moments in the past where it felt as though I would have to choose one over the other. And I think whatever the legal situation of that might be, um, the human situation, the emotional situation is that we can have loyalties to more than one space. And that our identities can draw from more of, more than one space. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're betraying either space. I know it's tempting to think in those terms, but I think that that, that binary sense of our identity, that seems incredibly limiting to me. Yeah. And actually very outdated as well, right? Um, maybe appropriate 200 years ago, um, but I think very much out of step with the reality of the contemporary moment. Yes, refuse the binary. Yeah. And it seems like if people were really honest, I think, well, that's a tricky thing that I just said there. <laughs> um, but almost anyone, if they're examining their heart and who they are with their identity, they're not one thing. And maybe some of the things that they are even perhaps might scare well, them well, right. so they don't like to look into those things or whatever it is. So Yeah, I think we're all used to this in our regular, daily, uh, run-of-the-mill lives, right? That um, the person I am with my 12-year-old son is not the person I am when I teach my class of graduate students, right? The person we are in a workspace, the person we are with colleagues, the person we are with family, the person we are with our children and the person we are with our own parents, those are slightly differently inflected people. So we're all used to this. We, we might construe it as kind of code switching in certain contexts as well, right? We all do this. Um, one of the great anxieties of modern life is this feeling of, well, which is my authentic self? Right. And in some contexts, I can understand why we might wish that we were engaging with the authentic person. Right. Um, I'm sure that when I'm with my wife, she'd like to think this is the real Peter. Right. <laughs> and I'd like to think the same about her. But I, I don't think it's about one of those selves is real. I think all of those selves are real. Right. And I think we could heal ourselves to some degree by not thinking that some of these selves are false somehow, that we maybe need to embrace all of them in some sense as well. It's interesting that you say heal. Well, I think we are, we're very drawn to questions of authenticity, right? And there's that feeling that um, oneself has to be the true self. But maybe human beings aren't wired that way. Maybe we have multiple selves or multiple dimensions to ourselves. That's very Walt Whitman. <laughs> maybe. I, oddly enough, I draw it from my physics background. I think about... Um, you know, I, it's not that I remember very much about my physics degree oh, now, no, many sure years. In the, no, actually, <laughs> shockingly little. Um, but I do remember the kind of mind-altering, mind-bending concepts of wave-particle duality. And that as a young person having to grapple with that paradoxical space, that's something we take for granted, like light or like matter, can be represented by these apparently mutually contradictory ideas that can be represented by waves or can be represented by particles. Um, 
that was eye-opening for me and conceptually valuable to me. And it's a conceptual framework that I bring to bear when I think about characters, which is also to say that I, it's the way I conceptually like to think about people. And when you say characters, like how could we... So, because... We're going to be talking today, eventually, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> more directly, because we have been talking about it, yeah. the fortunes. Sure. Um, and so when when you're thinking about that, um, bringing that to a character, wh- who is the first character from the fortunes who pops to mind that you start? Oh, I, I think they all struggle with this question. Um, the genesis of the book, you know, goes back maybe 20 years, shortly after I got to this country. And uh, I took a train journey um, from the East Coast all the way out to San Francisco. Didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't get a cabin. I just sat in a chair for what went on for three or four days. And um, I think physically for a European, the, the act of actually sitting in a train seat for four days as you travel across one country, one country. <laughs> um, that's very eye-opening. I think it's hard for Europeans. We come from um, a continent, but often countries that are much smaller in scale than the U.S. So our concept even of what a country is is smaller geographically, but if so, maybe even more homogeneous culturally in certain ways. So the same, the sheer physical experience of traveling across the country and feeling like, oh, I'm it's the morning, I'm in Kansas, and it's nighttime, and I'm still in Kansas. That's kind of a shocking discovery for a European to find. The sheer continental scale was eye-opening, I think, for me in those ways. Um, and on that trip, I first learned about the Chinese building the Transcontinental Railroad over the Sierras. And I'd always been tempted to write about that. I was surprised and interested by this notion of, um, you know, this act of nation building, right? We build the Transcontinental immediately after the end of the Civil War, a war that's almost torn the country apart, south and north. And now we build this railroad track that connects east and west. And it's built by immigrants, right? It's a physical act of nation building, and it's built by immigrants. Chinese building from the west coast towards the center of the country, and largely Irish immigrants building from the east towards the center of the country as well. Um, as somebody who's half Chinese and half Celtic, at least, in the Welsh yes, side, yeah. the idea of these Irish and these Chinese in some kind of race to meet each other in the <laughs> middle seemed really interesting to me. So that notion was something that I cherished for you know 20 years. I wasn't ready to write it then. I was too young as a writer, not experienced enough. Too young in terms of my experience of the U.S. in some ways as well. Um, but as I kept returning to that material, clearly there was some obsession in it. I eventually found this figure, this the main character of the first section of the book called Ah Ling, um, who's a Chinese manservant. He works for a guy called Charles Crocker, a real historical figure. And Crocker's the guy who is credited with hiring the Chinese to work on the railroad. He gets a little liberal rep because back in the day, people felt the prevalent stereotype of the day was the Chinese were too physically weak to do the hard physical labor of building the railroad. Um, of course, Crocker, I'm sure, also employed them because they thought he, they were available and they were cheap, right? So um, he had his own, I think, uh, agenda. But he is supposed to have been inspired by the example of this manservant, Ah Ling, mm. uh, in his decision, oh, I could hire all these Chinese and ultimately 10,000 of them work for him on the railroad. Let's take a short break sure. and then we'll come back. Sure. Today on the program, Peter Ho Davies is here. His novel, The Fortunes. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be right back. Oh, will you never let me be? Will you never set me free? The ties that bound us are still around us. There's no escape that I can see. And yet those foolish things remain. They bring me happiness or a That bears a lipstick's traces An airline ticket To romantic places And still my heart has wings These foolish things remind me of you A tinkling piano In the next apartment No stumbling words that told you what my heart meant a fairground's painted springs. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Peter Ho Davies is here. Um, his novel, The Fortunes. Um, 
Peter, thanks for choosing the songs for today's sure. program. Thanks for giving me the chance. <laughs> well, we started off. Could we, well, let's let's talk about the song we just heard. Oh, sure, a, yeah. A, a clip of that. I, well, I think what we were just hearing is uh, kind of an old jazz standard now. Uh, These foolish things. It crops up a lot. You hear it in a lot of different spaces. Um, and I think that version is uh, the one sung by Noel Coward, if I'm not much mistaken. Um, and these foolish things is inspired by. Um, uh, it was written for, in fact, a Chinese-American actress called Anna Mae Wong, who's the protagonist of the second uh, section in the book. Silver. Uh, yeah, right. And uh, and she met Noel Coward, in fact, at various points and sings some of his other songs as part of her cabaret act at various points. Um, and, um, you know, she's a figure who really interested me and I think is one of the moments where I've really felt the book coming together. I mean, I was talking just before the break about um, this figure of Ah Ling working on the railroad. And you'd asked me a little bit about... Um, about that sense of characters, the, the ways in which they're divided, the way that human beings are made up of these mutually exclusive feelings, I think, in some ways. And, you know, one of the things that really attracted me to Arling is he's both the original, you know, model minority, right? Crocker looks at him and goes, hardworking, loyal guy, I'll hire all these Chinese to work for me. And I think initially, Arling, who's a real figure, but really only a footnote in history, not, not much known to history, um, naturally would feel a kind of pride, right? He's a stereotype buster, right? People think Chinese are too weak. His example suggests they're not to do this. So he could feel maybe some pride about that. And yet when 10,000 of his countrymen are hired to work in actually very difficult, very dangerous, very physically arduous conditions and not paid as much as their white counterparts, I wondered how that pride might curdle into something else, right? So there's a interesting space there where he begins to grapple with the burden of representation. And it's interesting that you say he was, so he is also, like Crocker, a real historical yeah, figure. Right. So um, he's like, when you were doing research, when you were going to these uh, railroad historical mm -hmm. museums and the, yeah. the libraries, he was there. But you had perhaps maybe more latitude of freedom with the fiction part. Yeah. Yeah. connecting to the truth. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's named in Crocker's biographies, but he's almost just an object. He's an object of Crocker's inspiration. Uh, he's really just a footnoted figure in history. So nothing is known about him other than this pivotal role that he plays. Um, so that gave me free license to work with him as a character. Um, it also meant, though, that eventually at some point in the narrative, and I thought the whole book would be about him for a while. It is the longest. It is, it is the long longest. Yeah. Uh, section. That's right. Um, and he makes a decision, I think, ultimately, to sort of step out of the historical spotlight. I think it's the right choice for him. I think it's an ethical choice that he undertakes. So it's an appropriately motivated character choice. But it left me hanging a little bit because I thought this guy's going to be my whole novel. And now I've got 120 pages. And now he's saying, yeah, I'm not so much ready to be a character for the rest of the book. Um, but I think that... that How did you find the structure then, Peter? Well, How did I, I, these stumble four parts... these things, right? Every book I've written... Um, you know, you have a kind of hypothesis. I think the book is going to be about this. And the writing of the book is a testing of that hypothesis. Here, I'm going back to my science roots. Um, <laughs> and as happens in experiments, sometimes the experiment says, well, no, that hypothesis isn't quite right. It needs to be adjusted. Mm -hmm. um, so the hypothesis was that Arling would be the central character for the whole book. He eventually, and it did feel like it was coming from him, said, no, maybe not so fast there. And then I had to think about what else I'm going to do here. But I think that notion of his... Uh, equivocal, ambiguous relationship to representation, the burden of it, is what led me to Anna Mae Wong because as the first Chinese-American movie star, um, you know, she comes to prominence in the late silent period into the 1920s and 30s. That felt like a real thread of connection, right? So that he struggles with his role as a representative of a race. How does one person stand for a multitude? And she also begins to struggle with that question. So that felt like a really nice space of linkage between the two. And once I recognized that connection, it felt like I could see the rest of the book. Um, because ultimately, of course, what both of them are channeling is a is an authorial anxiety, right? A writerly anxiety. Writers in general, I think, have some... Uh, question about how much we can represent others. And I think writers of color have a particular burden about how much we can represent um, those of our ethnicity in various ways. Uh, I have those doubts and those anxieties as well. Um, and sometimes I think for many writers, those doubts and anxieties can shut us down. But these characters allowed me to write into that anxiety. They get to dramatize my own anxiety for me. And so I wanted to explore it through them. And of course, it's one of the reasons why the last character in the book, um, he's not me. John Smith. Yeah, he's not me, but he bears a 
a tangential autobiographical relationship to me, let's just say that. Um, and it almost felt as though I should come clean, right? That I should come a little out of the closet with this. I should say, I share these anxieties, and so I will own them a little bit in this semi autobiographical figure um, who shares some of the same contemporary anxieties that these earlier historical figures share. And when you, uh, and so when you said that when you found Anna Mae Wong, you yeah. you could see the rest of the book. Is yeah. that when you had you also been thinking about the Vincent Chin story, and you and you thought that would move it into this like a later time, like a kind of a another jump forward in time? Yeah, and then and then and that would be Jade. The right. section of Jade, and then the the last section would be Pearl, right. which would be the more contemporary the, section. The yeah, narrator John Smith. I, I, mean, I think I had a few uh, historical links or echoes that I was interested in. Um, so the Arling section, the men, the Chinese who come to work on the railroad, and the Chinese who come a little bit before that time to work in the gold rush. Uh, they're all men, by and large. Uh, it's very much what's described as, and this was true even of you know, white settlers in California during the gold rush, what's described as a bachelor society. Um, it's one of the reasons why Chinese restaurants and Chinese laundries thrived in this period, because there were no women to do that work. Uh, and those that were there, and I think there was about one Chinese woman for every 10 or 20 Chinese men in the country at the time, uh, a lot of those women uh, sadly were obliged to be prostitutes. That was the demand for their labor in a certain sense in that era. Um, and often those lives were very brutal and very short. Um, uh, but I was... Uh, it feels like... Could I ask, don't sure. forget where you were going with that, Peter, but I feel like in the last section, Pearl, there was a moment when John Smith, um, he's carrying around the little red book, mm -hmm. and there's something, and he's quoting Mao, saying something like that we must press upon the women to come out. Right. Is that also what... Because that's what made me think of, even though it wasn't directly that it would be prostitution now is right. um, actually... Yeah, I'm not sure he's, he's, necessarily, he's not necessarily saying that, or I don't think Mao necessarily intends that, but I do okay. think that John is keying on that. And in uh, okay. general, while three of my four protagonists are male characters, um, and pretty flawed male characters, I would say, um, there are strong female characters through the book anime in particular, but also in the other sections as well. And I wanted to attend to the cultural inequality and asymmetry, uh, which is in our culture, but it's also particularly in Chinese culture, particularly if you go back far enough, the valuing of male children over female children. I wanted to look at that space a little bit and not overlook it and not to. Um, so while the men on the railroad have a terrible life, uh, the Chinese women in that space have a much grimmer life, and I wanted to represent that in the context of the book as well. Uh, but I was going to say that the... Um, this early sort of historical bracketing that I was thinking about would be a way of thinking about, well, so we have a bachelor society for Chinese men arriving in the country in the 1850s and 60s. And in a certain sense, uh, a more recent uh, uh, set of ar China arrivals from China are orphaned girl children who are being adopted into American homes, right? Um, and I was interested in... Uh, on the one hand, this very male bachelor society, and at the other end of that spectrum, temporarily, um, a very female group of Chinese uh, arrivals into the country as well. And so I, I had something of this historical echoing, framing quality. And so I think it felt natural to think about we're going to go from the 1860s to the 1920s and 30s with Anna May. I'm going to bring us up to the more or less present moment with the adoption narrative that John Smith is engaged in. And it felt as though there was also a space somewhere between the 30s and the present uh, and that's where the 1980 uh, hate crime murder of Vincent Chin felt as though it was a very necessary part of the narrative in some ways. Uh, oddly, that's a narrative that I've known uh, almost since it took place in the early 80s, uh, even though it took place here, and I know it there occasionally. Because where were you? I, well, I was, I was growing up in Coventry uh, in England, um, uh, a city right in the center of Britain and right in the center of British car country, essentially, um, I think of Birmingham, the nearest really big city in England where I was growing up, is very similar to Detroit in some ways in terms mm -hmm. of its, its industrial base, at least. And as is in Detroit in the 80s, um, what was happening where I was growing up in the 80s, and I was in my teens at that point, was um, a great deal of anxiety about the car industry, You know, a lot of pressure on that industry, a lot of economic anxiety on that industry. I had friends in high school um, who were worried that their parents would lose their jobs over the collapse of the British car industry. And of course, that, that very economic pressure um, is what leads a couple of white uh, Detroit auto workers um, to get into a fight with an Asian-American uh, in a 
club in Detroit in 1982. They mistake him for a Japanese. He's Chinese-American. They mistake him for Japanese. Um, and out of that anxiety about Japanese imports destroying the American car industry, and of course, actually, we could argue that the American car industry was poorly managed, which was one of the reasons why it was really struggling, um, they take that out on this guy, and they chase him outside, they hunt him down for half an hour, and they eventually beat him to death with a baseball bat. And so it's not, it's not really ang- just ang- it's anger. It's rage. But I think it's the way, and of course this sadly, and this case for Vincent takes place um, 35 years or so ago now. Um, On Woodward. Yeah, right, very local to our experience. And again, it was interesting to write about something that was local to our space, having, you know, a lot of the trans-American history. We're talking about California, the characters go back to China, but I was really interested in writing about something that was close to home. But it's, it's interesting and dismaying to think that 35 years later, you know, a case where economic anxiety leads to the demonization of other races and hate crimes that lead to their deaths, um, that some of our rhetoric today is in that space, right? We can understand economic anxiety. The country is filled with economic anxiety. And, but some of that turns into a rhetoric that demonizes the other, uh, immigrants particularly, I think. And so there's a shred, there's an echo going on in that space. It's interesting that... Um, you know, each of the sections has has an epigraph, and for a little while, at least, that the the Vincent Chin narrative, the epigraph was a quote from uh, Donald Trump. Um, oh. And about yeah, about eighteen months ago, um, my editor and I were chatting about it, and she said, you know, that's probably going to become a somewhat dated reference by the time the book comes out. And oh. so we took it out, uh, although, <laughs> and I maybe wish it were a more dated reference at this right. point. Yeah, he uses an epi- epithet. Um, about the Chinese uh, that also incites the violence. Um, can you remember it, Peter, off the top of uh, your it's head? A, it's a, well, I, I'm not sure if I can say this on, uh, on oh. radio. Okay. <laughs> but That's... if people read the book and they understand what it said to Vincent, uh, they will understand the line that uh, Donald Trump was using towards the Chinese in regard to trade tariffs, but it's still it, it's a kind yes. of cursing. Let's take a short break, and then when we come back, would you mind reading? Sure, some absolutely. Us, Peter? Yeah, absolutely. That, would, that, would be, that would be great. Today on Living Writers... Um, Peter Ho Davies is here. His book, The Fortunes. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Everybody is. Welcome back. Bet you were dancing um, <laughs> today on Living Writers. Peter Ho Davies is here. Um, uh, before the break, we were talking about the the third section of the book, Jade, um, and we were talking about the the epigraph that could have been. Sure. And what the new epigraph? Yeah, is is now an epigraph from uh, from Kung Fu Fighting, actually, which we were just hearing, right? Um, it's <laughs> right, which is uh, yeah. Well, let's see. So it's uh, there was Funky uh, Billy Chin and Little Sammy Chong, and I, partly because the narrative is about um, 
uh, Vincent uh, and another Chinese-American friend of his, um, uh, who's the fictional teller of the story, the fictional witness of, of the killing of his friend. Um, but it also felt like a nice period touch. Um, it's a little before the time, but it felt like a song that they would, they would know. And I was very interested, too, in... Um, you know, the book in general is interested in various signifiers of Chineseness, and of course, kung fu fighting is one of those things that crops up a lot, a lot of the time. Um, but it also features um, a kind of oral stereotype, right? A musical stereotype, something called the Asian riff, which you can hear at the start of the song, which we can hear at the start of uh, China Girl, which we, we which entered. We started right, the, yeah. the show with, right? and both of which are referred to, of course, in the text, which is why we, we're using them. Um, and you know, it's also the riff used at the start of um, you know a song called Turning Japanese, which was a hit back in the day as well. And you know, partly because of the um, the mistaken identity, the Vincent who is Chinese American is read as Japanese and therefore attacked. I wanted to think about how. How that uh, musical motif of the Asian riff is deployed, you know, promiscuously to identify Chinese-ness and to identify Jap Japanese-ness in various ways. Um, and so to play off that, and my character, the narrator at least, is conscious of those echoes and talks a little bit into those spaces as well. And and he, this character, the, the narrator of, of Section 3, Jade, is unnamed isn't he I through? think at one point or he's he's given my name. Uh, there is a real figure. Um, That's what I was wondering. Who was uh, who was with Vincent that night? There were four friends who it was Vincent's. Um, one of the great tragedies of the narrative is it was his bachelor party. Uh, they were at a strip club together. Um, he was in fact Vincent. Uh, didn't die immediately of his wounds, but he was on life support and he was, um, he finally died or was in fact disconnected from the life support on what would have been his, um, his, wedding, his wedding day, day, I think. Yeah. Or he was buried on what would have been his wedding oh. day. Um, so, you know, the story is very tragic in, in that context, especially. Um, um, but I, I, even though I know there was a friend with him that night, there were two white friends and, and another um, Chinese-American friend. I wanted very much to fictionalize that character. Um, you know, some of these figures crop up in documentaries and in interviews. Um, some of them have chosen, I think, perfectly reasonably to um, to not engage in that space too much. And I, so I wanted to create a fictional portrayal of a figure who could be there with Vincent at the time. And in fact, I think at one point I give him my own name because in a sense, it's that's the imaginative move. I'm trying to imagine what it would have been like to be Vincent's friend on that night. And and why is that the perspective you want? Because I can see logistically right. why. Right. But I wonder, is there something else? Because you'd want someone who is there as witness and who could tell the full story. Right. And, and maybe who is still grappling or still right. reckoning. Well, you know, one of the reasons, again, to choose Vincent Chin as a, as a figure to think about in the book is that he's another representative figure, right? So we talked about this with Ah Ling, we talked about this with Anna Mae Wong. Vincent and Vincent's case um, are iconic and galvanizing, right? One of the things, uh, one of the sort of um, political movements that arise out of this is a growing sense of Asian American uh, identity. One of the ancillary uh, tragedies of Vincent's case is not only is that he's murdered in this way on this particular occasion, but that when the men who uh, kill him are brought to trial and they're caught immediately um, because they, they, they enact this killing in public, um, uh, they, on Woodward, yeah, like at right. the the scene you have is at McDonald's. Yeah, outside the McDonald's on Woodward. Um, they uh, they get off for manslaughter. They're fined three thousand dollars. They do no jail time. Um, and of course, there was a great outrage about this, and it really galvanized an Asian American political movement that combined, of course, Chinese and Japanese, because both felt you know victims of this attack. Um, and it eventually led to the prosecution of um, of the killers under federal hate crimes legislation, right? And this was really one of the very first times that kind of civil rights legislation that had been won by African-Americans was applied to Asian-Americans. Um, so it feels like a really interesting turning point um, in a kind of political consciousness for Asian-Americans. And so I was really interested in that space. But I was also interested in the sense of, so here Vincent becomes an iconic figure um, because of his death. So how does he represent or how does the person who isn't killed, the person who survives, the person who escapes, how does he fit into that representation? Right? So I was interested in, in that space, I think. Could we hear yeah, some I'm, of it, I'm going to read um, the section that addresses the attack itself. 
It was Vincent's idea. He told me to run, only he didn't say run. He said scram. It was the last word I heard from him in English, so I've given it a lot of thought. Scram. It's what you say to a kid, isn't it? A nuisance, or maybe what naughty kids say to each other after they ring a doorbell. Scram. Not run. He was a runner. Running to him meant winning, running towards something. Scram, I think, meant running away. If he'd said run, we might have both run. But scram was for me, because he didn't scram. He waited for them. He could have gotten away. When Evans hopped out of the car, it was still moving. It ran over his foot, for God's sake. It was the Keystone clan out there. You think Vincent couldn't have outrun these guys? He let us in track, but he was done running. He started it at the club after all. He would have fought in the gravel and dogshit parking lot outside, too, if Evans hadn't gone for the bat. He wanted to fight them. Maybe he figured he could make Evans drop the bat, shame him into a fair fight. Maybe he figured just two on one they wouldn't feel they needed the bat. This is on Woodward, under the golden arches there, fluorescent tubes and the sign humming like cicadas. I didn't run far, to the edge of the light, just far enough to live, just far enough to watch. Scram. Who was he to tell me to scram? Who was I to listen? Thank you, Peter. Um, It's interesting to me that you pick from this section, Mm. um, the section that begins with like this, him musing about a word. Right. Because I feel like that's also a, a current throughout the book is this this language. I, I hesitate to say plain with language because it's this is very serious <laughs> examination of language. It is, but it, um, there's, a, but there's a quality of play to it as well. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of jokes and a lot of puns and acted here. But some of the jokes have quotation marks. I would say. Jokes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, are racist it, jokes, it, right? Yeah. I mean, this particular narrator. Um, relates a number of those. Um, it's as a way of talking about pain of growing up. Like, yeah, in, in I, a I lot think of so. Ways. And I think there's a way in which they're, um, you know, this section is also called Tell It Slant, right? Um, which, of course, borrows from the Emily Dixon poem. Um, I'm interested in that idea of tell all the truth, but tell it slant. The novel is, you know, it's fiction, but it's also drawing upon uh, factual and historical sources. So there's that intermingling of fact and fiction. But I'm also, of course, aware of slant as a, a slur, as a pejorative, right? I guess I was thinking a little bit in these contexts, and this is also true about an Asian character retelling racist jokes about a reclamation, right? We're reclaiming the epithet of slant. We're reclaiming the jokes. If an Asian tells those jokes, they mean differently. The joke is on somebody else, I think. They're reflected back on the original teller. And, you know, and I was thinking in terms of that sense of reclaiming an epithet like slant of the African-American community's reclamation of the N-word in some ways as well, right? It feels like it's empowering, uh, and I wanted to allow my characters through language to find some of that power, I think. And so here in this instance, it's interesting because it also it's a was that um, so was this part of the fiction? Because we're talking this is a real historical person, mm-hmm. Vincent Chin. Um, is this what he did say? Like, because I, I think in your research, in the maybe acknowledgments section, you mentioned that you also maybe watched reenactments of the trial. Right. Or so, are, is this or is this something that came from the fiction, from the idea of this is the truth as you imagine it? Right. You know, it's um, it's such an amalgam of fiction and fact now that I could probably tease it apart, but in a way, I don't want to, right? <laughs> um, you know, no, it's odd. I, you know, we were talking about this earlier, right? That hyphenated quality. Uh, the idea of is it this or is it that? Which side of the hyphen do you fall, Chinese or American? Those kind of dualities, right? And um, so, formally, one of the ways I think about the book thinking about hybridity is to say it's not fact or fiction, it's both. Right. Um, you know, structurally, the book is uh, an, I'm claiming it's a novel. It says so on the front cover. <laughs> it's made up of four novellas that are thematically linked. Right. Um, but you can make an argument that it's a collection of stories or a collection of novellas or, or it's a novel. And again, I'm going to say I think it's both. Right. That the hybridity of the form. Uh, the hybridity of fact and fiction that speaks to my interest in the the hybridity of identity that is central to the subject of the book. Well, I won't argue with you. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) 
I also feel it's lyrical. So in that way, it's a it's it's a lyrical novel. Uh, oh, thank you. I appreciate you saying. But coming from a poet, that means a lot to me. Um, Peter, before we go to the next mm-hmm. break, this 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 section also it's it, it brings um, it does it not only brings us up forward in time, moves us through the book in time, um, but it also, like you mentioned earlier, brings us closer to home sure. here. Um, so so. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like this section is 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 also this uh, uh, an important part, maybe uh, of a story, a fiction, to, for people to read and start thinking about their own relationship to um, whoever or they consider as the other in their lives right. in some way. No, I, I think I think that's true. I, I think this is also a space. Um, for me, at least, it's the narrative that addresses questions of stereotype most directly. Um, there are expectations um, applied here and what the burden of stereotyping is in various ways. I mean, I think that's that's a central question when we think about Chinese-American identity because one of the stereotypes um, applied when we think about Chinese-Americans or Asian-Americans generally is a kind of model minority stereotype, which comes with a certain amount of apparently... Um, positive stereotyping, right? Good at math, play the violin, good at the piano, all these kind of um, apparently positive bits of self-image. They're still stereotypes, right? Mm. Um, Still burdens. Yeah, but I think it's one of the reasons why occasionally, uh, we saw this during the Oscar ceremony with Chris Rock, um, it's fine to tell jokes about and terribly stereotyped jokes about Asian Americans, even in the context of an Oscar ceremony where he was thinking clearly, very deeply and thoughtfully and funnily about the Oscar so white controversy that was playing out in the last go around, right? Um, so I was kind of curious about why you know, Asians get to be targets of that stereotyping when Chris Rock himself is very smart and very funny and very wise, I think. And aware. Uh, very aware, yeah, about stereotyping when it comes to African Americans. And I think it's partly because of somewhat positive stereotypes of Asian Americans, except that um, the danger with that and the danger of any positive stereotype, I think. Mm. Seductive. Well, yeah, but if the positive stereotype is true, it also means that all the stereotypes are true. Right, and they're not, and they're not all positive, right? Um, you know, one of the ones we joke about in the book is that oh, Asians have small penises, right? You know, and my, some of my African American friends who reject, you know, and are uneasy about, it, and rightly so, stereotypes about fried chicken or eating watermelon. I think they prefer that to the small penis stereotype, right? So the issue here is the space of. If any stereotype is one that we lean into or we seem to confirm, it runs the risk that it confirms all stereotypes, not even just about our ethnicity, but about all ethnicities in certain ways. The joke that I think um, the character thinks about here is, and it feels more and more pertinent in the current political climate that we live in, is that well, what's the white stereotype? Right? So we have them about ethnic minorities. What's the white stereotype? But in, we're now in a political climate where I think, um, at least in, for some commentators, there's a sense of white identity being a, a, almost thought about as a minority identity. Right, And you can certainly see that there are certain factions um, towards the far right who are claiming or reclaiming on their part um, minority status, right? Um, all lives matter, white lives matter, is a rejection of, but also an appropriation of, uh, language like black lives matter, right? White power is an appropriation of a black power movement from the past in some ways as well. Um, and so actually, you know, we do have a white stereotype, and that stereotype is that whites are racist, right? Now, I don't think that's true, right? We, we bandy that around a lot in regard to um, Trump voters lately. I think it's, it's uh, loose language. Um, but I think it reminds people of what it means to be stereotyped, right? Um, the difficulty is that some white people are racist, right? So now we have to live with that, right? Um, in the same way that stereotypes that are employed about other minorities have a kernel of truth. There is some minority, some person in that group who is who embodies that uh, that stereotype. It doesn't mean that everybody does, right? So now we're placed in a position, and maybe white people are also placed in a position that Asians and African Americans have been placed in for a long time. If, well, what are you going to do in regard to that stereotype? Are you going to 
confirm it? Well, that seems very problematic. Or are you going to be conscious of it and work against it? And that double consciousness, which is something that W.E.D.B. Du Bois was talking about years ago, uh, is something that every person of color in the U.S. has lived with all of their lives. And maybe it'll be instructive for some white people to live with it, too. We're going to take a short, very short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Peter Ho-Davies is here. We'll be back. just joining us. I'm really glad you did because you've got the last part of the program today with Peter Ho Davies. Um, his book, his novel, The Fortunes, on the table with us. Um, so Peter, when we started the program, we, we were talking a little bit about how now you're coming up on your 25th anniversary of living in the United States um, and that you were you were uh, born and raised um, in Coventry. Yeah. Um, and thinking about uh, growing up there, uh, your father, Welsh, um, your mom, Chinese-British yeah, yeah. or Chinese? Uh, uh, Chinese from the Chinese community in Malaysia. Um, my grandfather came from China, moved there. So, she, you know, uh, it's interesting. I think her relationship to Chineseness is also shaped by the fact that she's growing up in a British colony. Um, she's educated in English and in Chinese. She goes to study in Australia eventually. So, again, it's a, and then she moves to Britain to marry my father. So, uh, you know, this. Uh, How did they meet? They met. He was out there uh, in Malaysia, uh, helping them set up telephone exchanges. He was a telephone engineer. Oh, and so in the far. In fact, just today they celebrated their fifty-third wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> that is no small thing. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, thinking about them and thinking about that past. I mean. Um, you know, the Welsh girl is very much about uh, my Welsh heritage, and so it's based a little bit on some of my father's experiences growing up in uh, North Wales during the Second World War, drawing up on some of those family tales. And it's um, it's an effort, uh, writing the book is an effort on my part to try and understand Welshness and my relationship to it. And after having written that, it seemed actually fairly natural to turn towards my mother's side of my heritage and to think about a book that would explore and help me to understand my relationship to Chineseness and increasingly to Chinese Americanness as the book evolved. Um, and um, so this book feels, you know, maybe more for her, and the last book felt more for him, I think, in some sense. Mm. And and who you dedicate the book to? Though. Well, the book is dedicated to uh, to my son, uh, to Owen. And uh, but also to Olan, who is my uh, goddaughter, who's adopted from China herself. You know, it's nice to hear that Paul Simon song, Mother and Child Reunion, because the last section, of course, is about um, adoption. And that song, I've always liked that song, but that song uh, draws its title from a, a dish according to, uh, I, I think, to Simon himself, um, that's uh, a, a dish he ate at a Chinese restaurant called the Mother and Child Reunion. I guess it was a chicken and egg dish, if I remember <laughs> rightly. Uh, so I, I didn't quite manage to get that reference into the book, but I've always liked it, always wished I could somehow have worked my way into that space. And now you have. And there we go, exactly. <laughs> um, and thinking a little bit about um, those those earlier years sure. for you, um, but Last week we had a we had a chance meeting, yeah, sure. and we were talking a little bit about music yeah, too, and sure. somehow that's like when you're 
I don't know. I think it's interesting because when we were talking about the Vincent Chin mm-hmm. section of the book, um, you said um, in 1982, you were around maybe 17 yeah. years of age. So only really a handful of years younger than yeah. Vincent Chin was at the time mm-hmm. of, of his murder. Um, and that you were drawing parallels. Um, we talked about about the like maybe the disappearing industry that were causing right. um, increased anxiety and tensions. And in Britain is, is like no stranger to having, they've just had Brexit most yeah. recently. Um, but before that, you know, the national yeah. front. And right. so we started talking about this and right. music. Can you? Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, so I was thinking about this a lot um, over the last couple of three weeks uh, since the election. And, and I know a lot of the students I've been talking to are, um, you know, very anxious and very dismayed. And and I feel some of those things myself. But you also think about, well, what are the notes of hope? What we might we think about? Um, you know, and some of those are, you know, I went on a march for peace and unity uh, with the local children of Ann Arbor a week or so ago that my son and a lot of his friends were at. And that was encouraging. We get to think about um, them as future voters, right? And uh, there was a, a very heartening moment as we walked around campus doing that with a string, hundreds of kids, basically. Um, but I also th- try to think about it in a way that I think, um, and, and I've talked about a little bit with my students, um, kind of a historical perspective, right? So this book is about that. It's looking back over 150 years of Asian American history, um, which has been very bleak at times and has become better at various moments as well. So we can sort of see that, that sea change taking place uh, when we have a historical perspective. And now that I've hit 50 myself, I suppose I have some space for historical perspective myself. So I think about when I was a kid uh, in my early teens, a little bit before um, uh, Vincent's death, when there was a period of sort of racist nationalist political resurgence in Britain, really at the forefront of which was the National Front in Britain, I think. Um, And I vividly remember a moment... um, you know, in my own hometown, in the middle of a sh- busy shopping street in the city, um, seeing, I think, a young Sikh boy, he was you know, probably a teenager in a turban, running through the streets and being chased by a bunch of other guys. And I think for a while, you know, my own childhood comprehension of this was just like, oh, there's a guy being chased by some of his mates. Um, and only when, of course, they caught him and they threw him to the ground and they put the boot in did I understand that they were skinheads and he was not. He was Sikh, right? Um and I remember very strongly watching this happen and having no comprehension of what this meant, what this was, and watching a whole ring of people in the shopping center looking at it. I'm not even sure these people were rationalizing a, we should not get involved because uh, we'll get hurt. I think they were just like, what the hell is that? I can't even comprehend what I'm now seeing. But my father, who was with me, did. Um, and he just waded in and he pulled those guys off this kid and sent them packing. And I think he did that. I think he comprehended it because he was waiting for it. He was ready for it because he was my father and he had a son who wasn't white and he had anticipated that. Um, it's odd to think about that. I mean, I used to resent him when he would say, no, you can't go and play f- football in the park because it's a national front march. And I'd be like, oh, I'm not going to get into any trouble with those guys. But he anticipated those kind of things and you know, shielded me from them. I remember uh, years later, he told me once, oh, yeah, he came home from work one day and there was racist graffiti on our garage and he painted it over before my mother and I even came home. Um, you know, so some of that is about being watchful and prepared, which I think is a way of keeping safe. It's something that I think about. But I also was thinking back to that time and thinking about um, the music we were listening to, right? So back then, you know, um, The Clash, I guess, were the big band, right? The cool band. And they had a kind of punkish, uh, more than slightly punkish quality to them. Um, But they were also at the forefront of the kind of rock against racism movement, right? So there's a way in which I always thought when I encountered, you know, uh, or thought about more threatening versions of skinheads, I thought, you know... Yeah, the toughest white boy I know is Joe Strummer, and he's <laughs> just a look from him is going to keep you guys at bay, right? But it's a reminder, I think, and this is what I was talking about my students. This is the note of hope. Um, bands like The Clash were white working class bands, right? Uh, some of those bands, like The Specials, came out of my hometown, right? Um, 
those bands understood there was a commonality between white working class experience and white working class priorities and anti-racism, right? So it's very easy for us to fall into, and we were talking about this earlier, a kind of idea of white people racist, right? But that is a stereotype, and it's as limited as any stereotype is the thing we're trying to suggest. Um, and it felt to me that there's a natural allegiance between the working class of whatever uh, ethnicity or race that we might be. And Joe Strummer. Yeah, Joe Strummer, man. <laughs> He's got our back. Yes. And maybe, and like your father, like if we can, maybe thinking about this for like, um, we can be ready and we can be aware right. For everyone. Yeah, I think there's a reminder. Joe Strummer feels like he's a figure. You know, there's a way in which um, liberalism, I think, through its sensitivities, can seem weak. Somebody like Joe Strummer represents a kind of muscular liberalism, uh, a strong one. I think that's a useful thing for us all to remember in these times. Peter, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to say, we're Peter and I are going to say goodbye now. So is the Liz. And we're going to go out on a little bit of The Clash, um, Peter's final song choice for today. Um, today on the program, Peter Ho Davies, his novel, The Fortunes. Until next time. You are listening to WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. Now time for sports. What's with the voice? There should be music playing right now. No. 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 I don't know how to work. Whatever. Welcome to sports. <laughs> Just uh, a little acapella from, uh, from Dalton. Pataki. Off the top. Right off the top. Uh, off the top. Uh, Dalton Pataki, Morris Fabry, Kevin Klein, Jeremy Parks. Really back-to-back all-star casts. Uh, I mean, always a tough transition right in from there. It's tough to follow a show like that. A little cold. A little cold. Yeah, it was a little cold. Uh, not a whole lot to talk about in sports today. Uh, Detroit Lions came out and said Jim Caldwell will be brought 